Life can hit hard sometimes. One day everything seems to be going great, and the next we get sidelined by the unexpected. What do you do when the bottom falls out? Where do you turn when the storms hit? When the bank calls, when the job falls through, when that rejection letter comes in, when the doctor gives you the bad news? What or who do you cling to? Isaiah 41.10 speaks directly to the question. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God, our Father, is for you, even when it doesn't feel like it. Press on in faith. Cling to hope. Reach out to take hold of the hand of love himself. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on. All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Good. You are doing a lot better than me. If you're looking at my red uh, sunburn mug, uh, you'll notice that this is what happens when you go to the March Air Force Base air show for four hours on the tarmac with zero sunscreen. So, so there you go. So the gasping is great. Thank you, by the way. What on earth happened to him? And uh, it was wonderful. I brought my daughter, Ellie, and so she is horribly sunburned as well. Don't call CPS. It's uh, just what happened. And it really goes to show over everything how lost I am without my wife. She's at the women's retreat. Some of our ladies are going to be coming back today from a great time. And my whole world gets unspun when she's not around. Should have been the one who forced sunscreen into my hand before I left. I'm a moron. Okay? So... (laughs) It's about that easy. There's really no nice way to say it. And you've got to look at this for the next few minutes. So I apologize. Uh, it was great. When I got back, uh, one of my daughters was saying, you know, Todd, or Dad, you look like you went to Palm Springs and was kind of in this midlife crisis and got a lot of Botox. And so um, I can just tell you that didn't happen. And <laughs> this, is, this is for some other horrible reason. So we're really glad you're here today, especially those of you that are joining us maybe the week after Easter. Maybe you were a guest with us last week. You've come back. You at least have evidence this doesn't look like this every week because I wasn't like this a week ago. But uh, we're glad you're back. You're catching us on the beginning of a, a brand new series called Hold On. And I really appreciate so much. We have a couple of Chris's that do such a great job via the arts for us. Chris Dowdy made that video, and Chris Petnack, you'll notice even the pictures all around in our design, just do such a great job. Can we give them a thanks? They just do so much for us. And I really feel like uh, the, the graphics for this um, series just really captures so well this idea of reaching out, holding on to an arm that's already been extended to you and what God has done in the midst of the trials that you face. So we're going to take a look at this series. Let me get a couple things going before that. If you've got a Trinity this week, you have one of these inside. If you want to get that out, that'll help you kind of keep track with us uh, for our notes as we're going through the series. If you're in a home group, this is the starter questions and the discussion guide for your time this week. So I encourage you, bring that, have that ready to go with your group. Also, in your Trinity this week, take a note on the inside cover on this one side. Right over here, it says, Church Survey. 
Now, about six months ago, last September, we uh, did a church-wide survey just asking the questions, how are we doing on our mission? We haven't even, hadn't even rolled out our mission yet of living lives rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. By that time, just wanted to get a pulse, kind of where we as a church at before we even share this information. Well, we use all of September and October to lay that out, and now here we are in April wondering just how are things going on that regard. The easy way to do this, we're not going to pass out. We did a great job, little uh, surveys in hand. We're not going to do that. This time we're just going to do it online. We'd love for you to participate. It really won't take more than two minutes of your time, but it will help us get a better just across the board. It's a very, it's a blind survey. No one has any idea how you respond. So we just ask you to respond very authentically on these questions. It's very easy to walk through and literally has probably five or six questions total and you're done. There's nothing to write. It's like push a button for this or for that. You can access, access it from your phone, from your computer, your tablet, and you'll notice it's on the front page of our church website. So if you just go to our website, click the link, it'll set you up through the rest. So I'd love for you to do that. It'll just help us be able to have a bit of a pulse. Our leaders here at uh, Trinity just kind of want to know how is this going and are we living out, uh, or living towards at least, this mission of wanting to be a people who are rooted in reaching. So we'd love for you to participate. I'll probably kind of be reminding you of that. We'll have this survey open for the next couple of weeks, and we'd love for you just to uh, help us out uh, with that. We're diving into a a new series today, and we're going to look at the life through the next five weeks of, of a man named Joseph. This is Joseph of the Old Testament, not the human father of Jesus. This is Joseph, who is the great-grandson of, a- of uh, Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And that's where we're going to land. And you're going to see as we talk about this series that we pick the name Hold On for a good reason. Life is going to get hard for him, as we note week after week, just the challenges that he faced. And he is a great model to us of someone who held on to God even though things, the bottom kept falling out in his life. One thing I was telling this same daughter who said that I looked like I'd gotten Botox in Palm Springs, we talked a little bit last night about how the powerful thing about the life of Joseph is the lack of revelation that he had. Not a single shred of the Bible you're holding in your hands was available to Joseph. It would be hundreds of years later until Moses wrote about him at the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and he wrote of the story of Joseph, but Joseph had no written word of God in front of him. It was what he had heard about Yahweh from his father and his grandfather before him. It is the revelation that God had given them, but that was it. And his ability to say, God, in light of even maybe what we would understand, the little that I know of you, I'm going to trust you. And that should give us great hope because we have a lot more in front of us to understand the character and the nature of God. And we want to look at his life. We want to learn from it. So I'm going to encourage you over the next five weeks, watch as we look at a life of a favored son who expected to be on top of the world but found himself in a dungeon. And walk, walk in Joseph's footsteps as we find him clinging on to God's purposes and clinging to his promises, clinging to his presence for each step of the way. And I think you're going to be encouraged through this series. Here's our now what statement. What are we doing with this throughout the week? When the bottom falls out of your life, cling to Jesus for the help and the hope that you need. Let's begin. Number one in your notes today. Family dysfunction doesn't determine who you are going to be, but it does affect you. 
Family dysfunction doesn't determine who you're going to be, but it does affect you. We're starting out at the very beginning of Joseph, and it began with his family of origin, who he was born into and who raised him. And I want you to see that statement because it's very important to me. There would be many in our culture who would say, the family that you're born into does determine who you're going to be. The, the degree of dysfunction is going to affect you so much that you're not going to change, but you'll mirror those same habits and patterns. I say that's not true. It's not true according to the word of God, because number one, we will see lives like Joseph's that are transformed by the power of God, but we will also see even in our own experiences of the people we interact with. There are numerous people in this room right now who are not, quote, products of the family they were raised in. Meaning, they have said, yes, amidst this dysfunction and the challenges, it affected me. We will be the first to say that the family you grew up in deeply affects who you are, but does not have to determine who you're going to become. And it's very, very important from the beginning to grab hold of that. And I would love, if we had time, I would love to go around this room and to be able to share stories. This was the dysfunction I was born into but I've seen God change who I am and change my patterns, my heart, my attitude, my behaviors, and I don't live like how I was raised. And that's a powerful thing, and we attribute that to the power of God. So if we sat down over a meal together, what what we would inevitably talk about, if you and I were getting to know each other over coffee, is we would talk about your family. It is just such an important, integral part of who you are. It might be your current family you're a part of, but it could be your family of origin as well. And as we did, we surfaced some things that are great and some things that are hard. But family's where it starts. And we're going to do that with Joseph as well. That's where it all began. If you have a Bible today, I haven't asked you, by the way, open it to Genesis 37, if you would. Genesis 37. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. But I'm going to lead up to that. Genesis 29 and 30 lay out Joseph's home. Lay out his family, what it all looked like. So I, I have a couple of slides for you that I want you to take a look at, and this will explain it. It all begins with Joseph's father, Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob has lived his life. Interestingly enough, his name means one who grasps at the heel. That's another way of saying one who grabs your leg like a deceiver. Jacob has lived a deceiver's life this whole time. And now he actually moves into a situation where he wants to marry someone. Her father says, you have nothing to bring into the marriage. Work for me seven years, and then I'll give her to you. He works seven years for Rachel. You can see that up on the screen. Rachel is this great admiration of his, wants to marry her, do, do life with her, have a family with her. And in that whole sequence, at the end of seven years, father-in-law Laban instead gives him, the oldest sister gives him Leah. Now, Leah, he was not in love with, and very clearly from the beginning, wanted no part of being her husband. But that's the way dad said it was going to go. So it gives him, Leah and Rachel has to work another seven years to earn, as it were, both of them. And that's how this rocky family begins. A wife he wanted, a wife he didn't. Let me just tell you by way of of, uh, just uh, example, don't get into that life, okay? That's a bad way to begin, and it just all goes bad from there. Well, those two now he's married to, and he begins to have children with them. First, it's Leah. Leah has four sons that she gives to Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. These are the first four of what we'll find to be 12 sons of Jacob, and they come to Leah relatively soon. 
And Rachel here, and you'll notice by, as we keep looking at this graphic, Rachel is going to keep looking as lonely as she is right now. No children to her. And in this culture, in this early time, man, sons were what it was all about. These were ones you were going to give your family fortune to, and they were going to continue to lead for you. So she, he, she has four sons for Jacob. And interestingly enough, he still despises her, even though she's giving him sons. So Rachel is at this point, now there's four sons born, and she's like, this is not changing. I've got to do something. The phrase I use, I'm going to put my hands in the mix. I'm going to do something that is of my own design, not God's. And ultimately, like always, it goes south. And she says, well, I have this, this woman, Bilhah. Bilhah is like a servant to me. And since I'm not having kids, I'm going to give her to my husband, and she'll have kids for me. By the way, this is nothing like in our modern day what we call a surrogate. <laughs> this is a whole different thing. This is I've got a new wife is what this is going on. And so she gives, she gives Zilha to, um, do you want to put that up on the screen? Or Bilha, I'm sorry. That's why you didn't put up because I said the wrong name. Gives Bilha to Jacob to have children, and she does. She has two sons named Dan and Naphtali. Dan and Naphtali come, interestingly enough, even in the text, as they're being named, they always have such significance for why they're named these things. And now in a weird way, you'll notice even the color, they look a lot alike, but Rachel and Bilhah should be the same color. Leah is a little bit different tone. These two go together, and Rachel feels at least a little now included, but obviously no kids of her own. Well, Leah has not had any more children, and she figures, hey, if it worked for her, it'll work for me. She has a servant. She gives him to Jake, her to Jacob as well. Zilpah is that lady's name, and she has two more sons, Gad and Asher. So now the family line's continuing to grow, but you'll notice there's still no one in the Rachel column. Leah is able to have children even again, and Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah are all born to Leah. So now you're looking at this family line and you're seeing all of these different children that are coming up on the screen, and none to Rachel, and you're just realizing not only the loneliness she must feel, the sense of being left out of this whole family landscape, having no children of her own to contribute, and after all of this, finally, Joseph comes on the scene, born to Rachel. And when you've heard this narrative before and you've understood that, that Joseph is such a, an, an honored and a loved and a favorite son, you've heard that, but maybe we didn't always know why, and that's the why. He was the son born so late in all of this family progression and so much by his wife he really loved and all the others really were not dear to him. This is why he's so favored. Rachel will end up having one more son. His name is Benjamin. It's after this narrative that we're looking at today. And she will die in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. This is Jacob's family. This is what it looks like. And I'll just say, as you look at that family, this is the kind of family tree that rivals those in Arkansas. <laughs> if you're from Arkansas, come and see me after the service and tell me how mad you are. I know. Is a calculated move, okay? <laughs> but I will even say this. Even as we look at our families today and our family makeup, there are so many complexities, and especially, not only limited to, but especially in step families. And, and here's one of the things. I remember as a brand new family pastor going to an event where people were sharing about the dynamics of step families. And I'll never forget watching on the screen as this PowerPoint slide began to blow up with all these different connections that people have. There's nothing wrong with step families. They're often, 
this reality of going, hey, God, there has been pain and sorrow in this area. We want to join these families together, but realize in it are great complexities. That's the thing I want you to hear in that. There are great complexities. Even in that reality, though, when you notice all the different personalities involved in everything, you look at this family line that we put up on the, the screen a minute ago, and you go, man, there are some serious complications related to that. Here's what I want you to hear. The dysfunction of your family doesn't have to determine the fact that you're going to be hindered. It doesn't have to determine the fact that your development will actually be that you will become your parents. But it does mean this. It has something to say about the increased issues and challenges that family members face when they have to deal with additional pressures, when they have to deal with relational challenges that abound. Here's what I want you to hear today. I want you to hear hope. I want you to hear hope not maybe only for yourselves as you consider some of the family origin issues that you're still working out today, but also when you think about your own children and you think about maybe some of the things you wish you could undo, their lives are not determined because of some of the things that were challenging in their home growing up. And that's great news. And if you want to know more on that, simply find a person probably even sitting next to you who has seen God radically change the way their patterns were when they were growing up to something that they are now. And we give all credit and praise to God for that. The dysfunction of multiple wives and half-siblings, these brothers of another mother's, uh, would be more and more of an issue as time would go on. And I, I want to bring this up today, too. Sometimes we can ask the question, we can say, um, when we see multiple wives to one husband in the Bible, and you really don't see that at all in the New Testament, though it was happening in the culture of the first century, but in the Old Testament, you see it even like this among God's people. And it makes this question, like, was that okay? Was God good with this? Was this just part of his design? And I will say, outside of a very unique situation, in the nation of Israel, later on after this story, when there would be two brothers or more than one brother and a brother would die, his wife would become brought into the family of this other brother. Outside of that, this is never something ordained by God. You have to you read it as it is. Never does God say that's a good idea. It just simply gives an explanation of what happened. It gives the narrative descriptively, but not prescriptively like this was good. What these people, like Jacob, were doing was simply succumbing to the culture. The culture that they lived in had one man, many wives. But when we go back, I'm so excited. Our next series, you saw it on the card we passed out last week, is going to be about the essence of biblical marriage. And when we read back in Genesis, we read of Adam and Eve. We don't read of Adam and Eve and Stacy and Julie and Debbie. So you have to understand from God's design, it was always one man, one woman for their lifetimes. And this marred that design. And the price was going to come. There would be a great price to pay. As we read further in Genesis, more and more accounts of this family and more of the more dysfunction that begins to abound when we finally get in chapter 37 to meet the character, the subject of our series, Joseph. And I'll tell you now, he turns out to be a punk. Let's look. Number two in your notes. For some, the bottom falls out because of the actions of their families. For some, the bottom falls out because of the actions of their families. This series is not a series on the family. You'll see as we walk through. But I wanted to start at a very fundamental level related to Joseph's story. And we'll see that when the bottom falls out the first time, the first time, it's because of the actions of his family members. 
For some of us in this room, we can't relate, but for others we can. And for some of us, we understand, like Joseph, it happened because of the actions of our family members, what was done to us. Sometimes it happens simply because of the loss of a family member, the absence of a family member. That could equally be challenging. In this case, it's actually what his brothers do to him that creates the first fall. Here's what we read, Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, this favored son, a young man of 17, okay? We're looking down at our high school students today. Some of you fit that bill. You're in that life zone right now. Young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. So here you have these half-brothers and this loose connection his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. The first time we meet Joseph, he's a tattler, (laughs) tattling on his brothers the way they're being poor at their jobs. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's not a good thing. If I were to say to you, hi, my name's Todd, and I love Aaliyah more than any of my other kids, that's not a good thing. To have that kind of favoritism. Parents understand, God, you called me to love and treat well all of my kids. Not one over the other. This was incredibly distinct and created a huge chasm in the family because of the favoritism. He loved him because he had been born to him in his old age and he'd made an ornate robe. You've heard Joseph in the coat of many colors. This ornate robe is what that's talking about. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, hated Joseph, and could not speak a kind word to him. Don't worry, it gets worse. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, let me stop there. How many of you have ever told a a person about a dream who was in your dream? It doesn't go well, okay? It does not go well. They hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain. That was a very typical thing in this generation out working in the fields. Binding sheaves of grain uh, out in the field when my, suddenly my sheaf arose and stood upright. While your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Thanks, bro. Love it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told his brothers, like, Joseph, figure it out. Stop talking. <laughs> Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me, representing his brothers and even his parents. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers were jealous, and watch this, and look what his father did. And his father went, hmm... There are multiple times throughout biblical narratives, especially with fathers, who see what is going on, but don't act. King David is going to have the same problem a few generations later. Jacob should have acted. Jacob should have said, hey, this jealousy that's arising within this family, it needs to be addressed. He just took note. He would live to regret that. 
So in this passage, we read about Joseph having dreams and these family members symbolically bowing down to him. He tells them about the dreams as a bad idea. idea. And then understandably, this develops a greater sense of aggravation and hostility of his family members. They know he's overtly favored by their dad. Now they have to deal with their youngest brother's egotism. And I will say it was suffocating. It was absolutely suffocating. This sets up the narrative to what many of you are very familiar with, this next part of the narrative that we look at and how his brothers treat him. But I want to say this. For all of us in the room who have heard this next part of the story when we were kids, and whether you saw it on a blue felt board or down here, whether you saw it as a great uh, edition of Veggie Tales on a certain week, no matter how you saw it, you saw it through a third grade grid. And, and your Sunday school teacher would have presented it as such because that's who you were and the level of abstract understanding you had was zero. And it was like a story that you thought, oh, that was kind of mean. Now, here's the thing. I will say clearly, I love the fact that Joanna and I have taught our kids the Bible from the very youngest of ages. I love the fact that you are teaching your kids the word of God from the youngest of ages. We would never stop that. However, if we only go back to the third grade version of the story that we heard, we will miss its impact. We will miss its drama because there is a lot going on here today that to your third grade mind went right over your head. But when we look back in this text today, we will be astounded about how his brothers treated him. I want you to hear that today because this probably isn't the story you heard before. But it's so powerful and it's in the word of God. So all I'm advocating, don't lean on the narratives you heard in third grade and think you know what these narratives of the Bible teach. Reread them. Go back and understand what's going on. Here we go. Chapter 37, verse 17. Now Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. How? He's wearing the robe. You can pick that thing out a mile away. And before they reached, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. You heard that right. Here comes our egotistical favored brother. He's going to die today. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. That's a pretty significant degree of jealousy and hatred. We're going to kill our brother. Now watch this. Sometimes we feel like the stories of the Bible are not relatable. And I'm hoping that in your family, this is not relatable. I hate my siblings so bad, right? I'm going to plot to kill him, gang up with my other brothers. But here's my point. You've watched a dateline that is about this. You have seen the extravagances. You've seen the eccentricities, the horrific things that happen in our culture on news shows. And you've thought, wow, that's so crazy and so bizarre and so horrible. They've happened before in the book of Genesis. And I want you to grab this reality that these guys were going to do a horrible thing. I don't care how jealous they were. I don't care how agitated they were by his egotism that never creates the environment for, I think we should just kill him. But that's the idea they had arrived to. Here's what I want you to see in your notes. The namesakes of the 12 tribes of Israel would have been profiled in Dateline if the story happened today. Here's what I want you to see. The nation of Israel has hung their hat on these 12 sons. 
these sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they have rightly so said, these, these went from making Israel a family to a nation, his 12 sons and the multiplication that came from them all throughout the Old Testament. They always talk about the tribes of Israel. That's these guys. And here's the important thing for us to learn today. God does not use us. God does not choose us because we have it all together. God does not choose us because we're so morally awesome. Often God chooses to work in and through us in spite of ourselves. And even as a result of some of our past that we would never want to talk about. For these brothers, there must have been a deep degree later on of shame and humiliation. And actually in our series, we'll see it. But watch this, God still chose them. Chose them to lead his people. Continuing chapter 37, verse 21. When Reuben, Reuben heard this, Reuben is the oldest of all of Jacob's sons. He tried to rescue him, Joseph, from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Reuben is the oldest, and I think it has nothing to do with the fact that Reuben loved Joseph. Reuben knew the drama that this is going to create is a whole lot worse than what we have now. I think he's just a pragmatist. I think he realized how this would destroy his father and just said, it's not worth it. I'm gonna at least, let's get him in this cistern. I'll double back later today and rescue him. We've used the word cistern a couple times. Take a look at this picture. This would be a cistern from the Middle East. It's basically a well. It's usually about 12 to 15 feet deep and it would have an opening that's usually actually relatively small, maybe two to three feet across. So if you were to be dropped into a cistern, there's no way you're getting yourself back out. It's like being thrown into a well. So this was the idea and this was what uh, Reuben threw out there. Do this instead and ultimately he would double back and save his life. Continue, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, this has all been plotting. They haven't even seen him yet. They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So he wasn't going to drown. He was just going to be held there for a while. And they sat down to eat their meal. I think this part's so funny. I think that's what Joseph was doing, was bringing them lunch. So they take him, they take off his robe, they throw him in a pit, and they go, hey, before we do anything else, we're really hungry. Let's take a break and eat. So over lunch, over the lunch that he probably brought them, they're sitting down and this is what they say. They come to this new conclusion. As they sat down, they looked it up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah, watch this, Judah, the fourthborn of, of Jacob, Judah, through whom the kingly line of Israel would come. David was a descendant of Judah. Jesus was a descendant of Judah. Judah says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up the blood? Come, let's sell him. Let's make a buck. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Here's the thing. Let's not kill him. He's our our brother. Let's just sell him. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Why would you kill a brother when you can make a profit? What What a sound financial mind Judah had. 
And I want you to hear, I don't want you for a minute to think this was somehow an act of grace. He was, they were going to sell their brother. Just get that. Sell their brother to a group of people who were going to take him, watch this, and do God knows what to him in Egypt. We call it today human trafficking. Don't miss it. That's exactly what is happening here. And by the way, it wasn't as though Joseph made a sequence of bad decisions and ended up in some horrible situation on his own. His brothers sold him. That is a pretty horrible thing. And that is a horrible thing when not only you're going to experience what it means to be sold to someone, but you knew who did it. And it was the very flesh and bone of your own family. We're going to see throughout Joseph's story what we call Jesus types. And what I mean by that is that you'll see pieces of Joseph's life that were symbolic, that were already foreshadowing what would happen to our Messiah. And one of those is the fact that Joseph is sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. It'd be interesting. We just celebrated this a week ago. Jesus was sold not by a brother, but by someone really close to him, like one, by a disciple. Sold by Judas, and he actually was worth a little bit more for 30 pieces of silver. And we're going to see throughout this narrative that even though Jesus is never mentioned once, this is way predating him, we're going to see that Jesus is always the hero of the story. And though Joseph was sold as a slave to go down to Egypt, Jesus was sold into the hands of the Romans to be crucified on a cross from something he never flinched. From his purpose of coming to redeem the world he never turned away from. And he did that for you. That's a powerful thing to stop and embrace today. Even though we're not talking about the life of Jesus, we're talking about someone who typified him. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern, Reuben has not been here during this. He returns to the cistern. He saw that Joseph wasn't there. He tore his clothes. It was this era's idea of just showing incredible grief. When he went to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood so to make this appear that he's been eaten. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Just listen to this. They found this robe, or they they did this to this robe. They bring it to their dad. They know full well what happened. And watch them never break uh, formation and keep the lie. He recognized it, said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. I'll mourn for the rest of my life, is what he's saying. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt in Egypt, to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Reuben's too late. For whatever reason, he was somewhere else distracted at lunchtime, and these guys sell him during that time, and he comes back, realizes his plan now has been thwarted, and now he's going to have to go along with the brothers. I want you to watch this. When they come back, they rip up the robe, put it in goat blood all over it, bring it back. Realize that the torment 
the emotional torment that this father is going through thinking he's been, his son has been mauled in the desert by an animal, they could have at any moment said, Dad, let me be honest with you. They never once pulled out of that lie. In all of the grief and all of the sorrow, just kept letting it go, watching him fall apart and never said a word. That's horrible. But I want you to catch something. I wonder if one of the reasons why they never changed their story was because they realized dad would never lament like this for me. The fractured family, the crazy dysfunction that happens, Joseph was born into a family that was ripe with not just problems, but with tragedy. And because people didn't obey God early on, they would pay prices for it later on, consequences that would erupt. Let's bring it together today. Number three in your notes. When the bottom falls out, it matters who you cling to. When the bottom falls out, it matters who you cling to. Would you notice today that never once have we said, if the bottom falls out. It's not a matter of if, it's when. For many of us in this room, you would say, not only did that happen once, but I could count a few. Others of us, maybe that were younger, it hasn't happened to yet. I could say for the home I was raised in, I don't think I could have said in high school up to that point in my life, I had experienced anything like this. But I have since. And you know that that is a true statement. It's not if, it's when. So here's what I want you to see. The bottom fell out of Joseph's life. Think of that day when he woke up. Gets up in the morning, kind of begins to make his way, gets himself dressed. Dad sends him on an errand. Take lunch to your brothers. Think about how all of this changed in one day for him. There was a lot of issues, there was a lot of baggage, there were things going on, but everything came to a head within hours. His life was flipped upside down. He's a favored son at his father's home and now he's in a caravan to be sold to who knows who. That's a pretty big shift. That's what would qualify for the bottom falling out. My question to you, what did you do? What did you do when the bottom fell out in your life? Now, On the one hand, it wasn't the end of your world because you're still with us today. You're still vertical, but it felt like it would be. It felt like you wouldn't be able to go on. Maybe it was a family member who was killed or died suddenly. Maybe it was a marriage that seemingly blew up overnight. Maybe a career that was over in the blink of an eye and I could list a whole bunch more. Here's my question. Here's what I want you to especially ask yourself. To whom did you limp? Because you don't stand walking tall towards someone when the bottom has fallen out. You are in a mass over here in a ball on the floor, barely able to breathe. I think about some of the times when the bottom has fallen out of my life. And um, my mom passed away three years ago, this last month. And I remember going through that process with her. She died Um, of cancer, and I was walking through that road, and there were a lot of complicating things that were more than just dying from cancer. It was a whole mess. And I remember as I was driving one day and just felt this, this just heart sickness over what she was going through, I had this flashing thought. I'd never been tempted to drink in my life, but I had this thought, I wonder if that would help. 
we've, we've chased a lot of different things when the bottom has fallen out. And here's the point of this series. Jesus has already extended a hand to you. The bottom falling out in your life never caught him by surprise. And he's extended a hand to you. The simple question is, will you hold on to his? Interestingly enough, a book I wanted to recommend to you that couldn't be more dialed in to this series is by Max Lucado called You'll Get Through This. My mom was reading this book before she died. And, and she actually uh, recommended it to me. And so while my mom was dying, I'm reading about the life of Joseph, being so incredibly encouraged. I'll read you a clip before we're done today. But this book really travels Joseph's life so well. It's just the perfect companion to the series that we're going to be in. The tagline to this series, you're going to be encouraged every week to consider clinging to Jesus, clinging to him, to reach out and grab a hold of that hand already extended to you, to experience the promise that Jesus is stronger, that he's bigger than anything you will face. We sing about that. Is it true? And I want you to see this. This is an important thing to establish week one. When we talk about this phrase, the bottom falling out, guess what we're never saying? We're never saying that Jesus failed me. That's when the bottom fell out. We will always attribute that to things like when the person died, when the relationship failed, when the career was over. Watch this. If the bottom, if my stability was on the fact that I had a career and it defined who I was, the bottom fell out, I didn't know who I was anymore. If the stability in my life was a relationship and that relationship is gone, I don't know who I am anymore. And on the list goes, here's the problem. These people, these things were never meant to be what I stood upon. Never meant to be that which was holding me up, but Jesus alone. Jesus alone was always who the Bible says I'm called to live my life upon, standing upon him. So when we use the phrase, when the bottom fell out, what we're going to consistently mean by that is that we had put our trust in something less than him. And the good news is that when those things do fall out of our lives, Jesus is right there. I want you to see as we close today, something very central to our mission is accomplished when the bottom falls out. First, the idea, you know, our mission is that we're a people that are growing and wanting to be rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. It's powerful to understand that walking, that limping through our toughest experiences actually allows us, actually draws us closer to Jesus to live this rooted, reaching life. Your roots grow deeper into the person, into the reliance upon Jesus when you don't know where else to go. I love this quote. Edmund Clowney said this, trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. About a year ago, we did a series in James 1, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of many kinds, that's what he's alluding to. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. Watch this. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. You become more rooted in Jesus when the bottom falls out if it's him that you cling to. Secondly, the people in your world know the context of your life. One of the things that we've talked so much about is the power of relationship. 
And the fact that the people that you do life with, that 8 to 15 group of people, some of them know Jesus, some of them don't. And the reality is, is they are watching you. They do life with you. And when they know you are walking through the deepest valley, when they know that the bottom has fallen out, you didn't even have to tell them. That just comes in conversation. It comes in understanding. And as a result of that, they are watching who you're reaching for. They're watching who you're limping towards. They're watching to whom you cling. And here's the thing you had thought for those who don't know Jesus in your world, God, I want them to know him. I want to be able to say something. I want to be able to do something. I want to pray for them. And while those are all wonderful things, the thing that might draw them closer to Jesus is not in your strength, but in your weakness. Not in the way that you've got it all together, but when you recognize how deeply you are dependent upon God, that might be just the thing that they say. I need someone to cling to and I'm watching you cling and it's something I've always needed my whole life. I wanna know more. Let us never do this. In your notes, don't dismiss. Don't dismiss the bottom falling out in your life as a time that God doesn't wanna work in and through you to reach others in your world. It might be the prime time he's been preparing for all along in terms of your Jesus influence in their lives. In your notes and on the screen, I want to finish with a quote, a short one, and then I want to read you the context before we go today. Here's the quote. You'll get through this from Max Lucado's, you'll get through this. It won't be painless, it won't be quick, but God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you'll get through this. And this is what the context of that is. You'll get through this. You fear you won't, we all do. We fear that the depression will never lift, the yelling will never stop, the pain will never leave. Here in the pit, surrounded by steep walls and angry brothers, we wonder, is the gray sky ever brightening, this load ever lightening? We feel stuck, trapped, locked in, predestined for failure. Will we ever exit this pit? Yes. Deliverance is to the Bible what jazz music is to the Mardi Gras. I love this comparison. Bold, brassy, and everywhere. (laughs) Out of the lion's den for Daniel, the prison for Peter, the whale's belly for Jonah, Goliath's shadow for David, the storm for his disciples, disease for the lepers, doubt for Thomas, the grave for Lazarus, and shackles for Paul. God gets us through stuff, through the Red Sea onto dry ground, through the wilderness, through the valley of the shadow of death, and through the deep sea. I love this. Through is a favorite word of God's. It won't be painless. Have you wept your final tear or received your last round of chemotherapy? Not necessarily. Will your unhappy marriage be happy in a heartbeat? Not likely. Will your... um, Are you exempt from any trip to the cemetery? Does God guarantee the absence of struggle and the abundance of strength? Not in this life, but he does pledge to reweave your pain for a higher purpose. It won't be quick. Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers abandoned him. He was at least 37 when they saw him again, and a couple of years passed before he saw his father. Sometimes God takes his time. 120 years to prepare Noah for the flood, 80 years to prepare Moses for his work. God called young David to be king and then returned him to the sheep pasture. He called Paul to be an apostle and then isolated him in Arabia for for perhaps three years. 
Jesus was on the earth for three decades before he built anything more than a kitchen table. How long will God take with you? He may take his time and listen to this. His history is redeemed, not in minutes, but in lifetimes. But God will use your mess for good. You see a perfect mess. God sees a perfect chance to train, test, and teach the future prime minister, speaking of Joseph. We see a prison. God sees a kiln. We see famine. God sees the relocation of his chosen lineage. We call it Egypt. God calls it protective custody, where the sons of Jacob can escape barbaric Canaan and multiply abundantly in peace. We see Satan's tricks and ploys. God sees Satan tripped and foiled. Let me be clear. You are a version of Joseph in your generation. You represent a challenge to Satan's plan. You carry something of God within you, something noble and holy, something the world needs, wisdom, kindness, mercy, skill. If Satan can neutralize you, he can mute your influence. The story of Joseph is in the Bible for a reason, to teach you to trust God to trump evil. What Satan intends for evil, God, the master weaver, the master builder, redeems for good. Joseph would be the first to tell you that life in the pit stinks. Yet for all of its rottenness, doesn't the pit do this much? It forces you to look upward. Someone from up there must come down here and give you a hand. God did for Joseph, and at the right time and in the right way, he'll do the same for you. So we close our service today and even throughout this series, we normally will have people up here available to pray with you about any and everything. But even just considering the series and what things may bubble to the top, we just wanted to create an environment. So during the last song today, those do double doors over here to the south side of the building, there's gonna be people there available. If you just wanna meet them over there, we have our fireside room. They just love a chance to pray with you just to give you even a little more time and a little more space. When the bottom falls out, clean. Cling to Jesus for your help, for your hope. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you today looking at this narrative that just begins the story of a man who trusted you, a man who clung to you. Clung to your presence, clung to your promise, clung to your power, that this was not gonna be the end. And God, as I look out over This congregation today, I see so many stories that are of the same nature. Stories that look like the bottom fell out and there may have been no hope. And in and of ourselves, there was nothing that we could have done to change things or fix things. But we realized that you had a hand extended to us and we reached up and grabbed. We were clinging, holding on to you. God, let that be the stuff of our lives moving forward. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, I have no hand to reach up to. I I know what you're talking about of life in the pit. I know what you're talking about when the bottom falls out. But time and time again, I'm just left to my own devices to figure out what to do. I am hopeless. And if I were in your shoes today, I would totally agree. I'd get it. But there are so many people in this room today that believe that Jesus is our hope and that Jesus is our help. And I want to encourage you, this might not be the first time you've heard this invitation, it might have been the 70th, but you realize now the dots are connecting and he is calling you, the Bible says he is waking the spiritually dead. And I would encourage you today to respond to this invitation and you've heard it so clear today, 
Coming to Jesus doesn't take away the problems. Coming to Jesus provides you with someone to walk through them. A hope and a help in times of trouble. So I would encourage you, respond. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. Believe that this Jesus we've talked about today, believe that he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that he's the only savior available. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm going to walk your path. Jesus, you've laid an example for me in the Bible. and Even characters like Joseph, I'm gonna walk that way in step with you. Father, this week, help us to be a people who hold on, not because we're so strong, but because you are. Help us grab hold of your arm. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name.